0: Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today I'm gonna talk to you about something called the chilling effect and how it often plays out in chiropractic schools. The chilling effect is actually a legal term and as such, it has received a surprising, at least to me, amount of attention from the US Supreme Court. The chilling effect is the inhibition or discouragement of the legitimate exercise of natural and legal rights by the threat of legal sanction. The reason it's getting attention is because in the United States public school system, there are many students who know that if they voice their opinion or, even worse, present evidence counter to an accepted or popular narrative, they'll be punished with a lower grade. Some states have recognized this as a problem and are enacting laws to prevent instructors from silencing dissent under fear of punishment. They, at least, have the sense to realize that what they should be doing is fostering intelligent debate and allowing good ideas to defeat the bad ideas. But the question I have for us is, does the chilling effect apply to chiropractic schools as well? So today, let's talk about the chilling effect and how it affects chiropractic. During the course of my chiropractic education, I felt very much like the Chilling Effect was present, even though I didn't know at the time that that's what the name for it was. I went to a school where we were not allowed to use the word subluxation as an answer for any question, ever. It was considered unacademic and unscientific. I'm sure some of you can relate. So we were ultimately presented with a chiropractic narrative. We were expected to accept it, but we were never given any options. As I began to see inconsistencies and incompleteness in the narrative, I began to reject it. I did not have an alternate narrative to take its place, but even that was held against me as a sort of a straw man argument. It's the age-old complaint that you can't criticize a narrative unless you have a better one. Well, sure I can. Knowing what's right is not a prerequisite for knowing something is wrong. I came to realize that the amount of gaslighting that takes place from straw man arguments, from people in positions of power, was not just itself unprofessional and unacademic, but it was simply unacceptable. Unfortunately, I also quickly discovered that there was nobody in power who was willing to do anything about it. For me personally, to have that happen at such a young age turned me against the whole system. When I graduated, I left the country with no intention of returning. And if anyone asked, I would tell them that chiropractic in America was dead. That was more than 20 years ago. I obviously came back to the U.S., and I've even taught for two different chiropractic schools since then. Over that time, I came to grasp a better understanding of the narrative I was first taught, as well as a better alternative narrative, which is the one I currently hold to today. I'd like to walk you through both narratives, and I'll explain why I found the first one to be insufficient and the second to be superior. Let me start off by telling you that, for this to work, I cannot present you with a straw man argument but I have to present what is called an Iron Man argument. That is, I have to present the best possible case for both arguments. The truth of the matter is that I could not really understand the second argument until I fully understood the first one in its best possible scenario. So the first argument, which coincidentally is the one adopted by most physical therapists as well, is the narrative that muscles are the guiding force of all movements. Therefore, subluxations don't exist, at least not in the traditional chiropractic sense. But what you really have are segmental joint dysfunctions created by asymmetrical joint contraction or tonicity of the muscle. I know that sounds like a bunch of mumbo jumbo nonsense, but break it down and there's a story behind it. In this scenario, the proper therapy or treatment is to address the muscles to create a more coordinated or balanced movement of the joint complex. The only reason why the joints are addressed at all is because they sometimes get stuck or fixated. The purpose of a manipulation is to mobilize and free up the motion of these fixated joints because only an unfixated joint can respond properly to proper muscle coordination. Therefore, every musculoskeletal disorder is seen as a muscle coordination issue and the joint merely gets caught in the crossfire, if you will. I've stated this in a way that can be intentionally applied to all joints in the body. In the specific case of the spine, however, it is the facet joints that receive the majority of the attention. Perhaps you've wondered why this is the case. It's because the facets are seen as the guiding joints and therefore the motion joints, while the intervertebral disc is seen as a weight-bearing structure, primarily. If the primary problem is a movement pattern problem, then it makes sense to address the movement structure, which is perceived to be the facet joint, and therefore presumed to be the cause of joint fixation. Once you become obsessed with the facet joint to the exclusion of the intervertebral disc, it becomes obvious that facet joints would have very little effect on neurology, except for perhaps the individual pain sensors at the joint capsule of the facet, meaning you could affect pain on a tiny scale, but certainly not total body neurology. Upon realizing this, it occurred to me that they could've explained this to me in less than 30 seconds on the first day of school, and that would've given context to the next three years. Of course, that did not happen, which later caused me to wonder if perhaps they did not understand their own concept well enough to communicate it so succinctly and effectively. Now, that's purely speculation on my part, but it does make you wonder. That, what I've just given you, is my best attempt at an Iron Man argument for this point of view. It's a point of view that has been adopted by many chiropractic schools, if not the majority of chiropractic schools. As I mentioned previously, physical therapy works under much the same conceptualization. I think that's valuable to know because when you know what they are taught and how they believe it works, it's a lot easier to communicate with them. Many years ago, I was introduced to a physical therapist, and she was truly very good at what she did. I would say that we were both a little cynical towards our professions at that time, but we recognized that there was something valuable there but somewhat lost behind the politics and education of our respective professions. After talking for some time about joint manipulation, we decided to trade textbooks. She gave me the text that was used in her classes to learn grade four mobilization. It was out of Australia, and it was nearly identical to the Bergman textbook that we had used in school. I, of course, gave her a copy of chapters. (laughs) When we met up again to trade texts back, she said, That book, meaning the chapters, is on a whole other level. Why in the world would I manipulate my patients with no idea of what I hope to gain by it when you're doing it with this level of specificity and your reputation for results speaks for itself? It was then that I first tried to wrap my brain around both ideas so I could better understand the difference between them, and her textbook actually helped me to do that. My very first problem with the first narrative, which occurred to me in my second year of school, was that we don't wake up one day and one of our muscles says, today, I'm gonna to ruin your life and I'm gonna remain chronically contracted for the foreseeable future. This analogy worked for me because it made it obvious that muscles don't just decide to act on their own. What causes muscle contraction? The nervous system, of course. So when a muscle is chronically contracted, it's because it was told to do that. The question is, why? What's the ultimate why at the root of this muscle response? That was the question I finally asked myself that led me to formulating a new theory. I don't really wanna say that I was that it was my new theory, but it was new to me and I needed it to be complete. First off, most of the con- contractions that create these hypertonicities are created in synapses in the spinal cord, not the brain. That means that speed is of the essence to the nervous system, that means These muscle responses are reflexes, and therefore they are defenses in response, not unsolicited actions. Slowly, I came to understand that the human capacity for bipedal movement, the ability to stand erect and walk on two feet, is not just an anomaly in the biological world, especially considering our size, but it appears to be a prime directive of the human being. It's a bit of an engineering marvel to get us upright in the first place. And we take about two years to develop the neuromuscular coordination to actually pull it off. But think about antalgic posture for a moment. No doubt you've seen someone all twisted up and bent over, and in spite of their ridiculous stance, they're still capable of standing erect and walking. That tells you that the brain is not willing to sacrifice the ability to walk and will do almost anything to retain it. In fact, we know that when someone loses the ability to stand and walk, they are often very close to death because the body only loses this ability at the very end. From a purely physics perspective, if standing is the most important thing, then it's all about weight-bearing, which means plumb lines, instantaneous axis of rotation, and center of mass. None of these things have anything to do with the facet joints, but they're based on the weight-bearing structure of the spine, and that is the intervertebral disc. I must say that Gonstead chiropractic is not the only technique system that focuses on the disc, but disc-based chiropractic is in the minority for sure so this led me to another concept what if we thought of every vertebra sitting on its nucleus as a balancing act like a scale or a teeter-totter obviously the simplest design would be an entirely straight spine but that design would have no shock absorbing capacity and there would be little space for the internal organs certainly the normal curves of the spine are very valuable but they demand that the perfect balancing point for each vertebra is not the most neutral position of that vertebra. Let me say that another way. The functional neutral position of the vertebra at any given time is not the neutral position relative to the ground, which we would presume to be parallel to the floor. In this way, when evaluating x-rays and giving adjustments, we cannot oversimplify to thinking our job is merely to push each vertebra into a position that makes it parallel to the ground. The purpose is to achieve functional neutrality, which is a position that's determined by the vertebra around that segment, which influences its balancing point. That is a very complicated understanding of how the joint functions within the system, and that's not surprising when we understand, and appreciate, how complicated it is to stand upright in the first place. So now, let me put this together in a narrative that replaces the first one. One question that's often asked is, why do the vertebra move posterior and inferior? And how do we know this to be true? To begin with, White and Punjabi say that this happens because the posterior ligaments, even though there are more of them, are collectively weaker than the anterior ligaments. This weakness creates a point of least resistance, so vertebra will always go posterior into the weakness. That's merely a matter of physics. But there's another important reason why this happens. If a disc is injured and loses its capacity for weight-bearing, how can it adapt to this? The answer is by moving posterior and inferior and putting more of the weight-bearing responsibility onto the facets. Obviously, this is not what the facets are built for, so it will result in pathologic degenerative changes in the facets. Don't think of this as a facet problem, but it's a facet dysfunction caused by a disc problem. So if someone is schooled in the first narrative, they're going to say, what about facet syndrome? Funny you should ask. We used to teach this exact thing and still do in the Gonstead class at Life U, and many students told me it was the first time facet syndrome ever made sense to them. It works like this. Facet syndrome is a situation where the vertebra above goes extremely inferior and becomes fixated. In essence, it's stuck attached to the facet below. This does not have to be bilateral either. It can be unilateral. If you think of the vertebra going more posterior and inferior, to shift more weight onto the facet joints to support more of the body weight, then it makes sense over time that the weight bearing alone is enough to create inferiority because the joints are not built to support that kind of weight, especially for an extended amount of time. Fixing this is very easy if you understand how it is happening. Let's use an example of say a C7 vertebra with facet syndrome on the left. The correction wouldn't be any different if it was bilateral, but let's just assume unilaterality. You'd make a left-handed contact, usually on the left C7 lamina. The reason for this is it gets you closest to the facet joint and creates the shortest lever. You then make a thrust that is almost purely I to S. The purpose for this is to open the facet joint and allow the vertebra to move P to A, but not on this adjustment. You thrust I to S and you'll get a tiny facet click, but you will immediately recognize an increase in mobility of the joint. Now, you can adjust the C7 as you normally would based on the listing to create the P to A correction. What we see here is that facet syndrome is actually further proof that the vertebra moves posterior and inferior and that the facets are expected to bear additional weight when the disc is dysfunctional. Under the first narrative, there's no explanation for the etiology of facet syndrome other than to blame the facets for everything without cause or explanation. At least, after three years of being schooled in this philosophy, I never heard one except for the dismissive, well, it's always the facet. We've talked about this before, but we should not forget that flexion and extension is x-axis rotation with z-axis translation. X-axis translation demands that posteriority is accompanied by with inferiority because that's a physics way of describing rotation. On a larger scale, it's the same thing as a satellite in orbit. A satellite is perpetually falling. So in like manner, it's going anterior and inferior in such a way that it appears to be holding a steady circular line. We shouldn't think of these as two distinct motions, but we're creating a vector that's the combination of both posteriority and inferiority. But the combined vector is the real deal. To complete this thought, let's talk about so-called anteriorities for just a moment. First, we have to recognize that the perfect balancing point and therefore the most ideal position of the vertebra is in the most superior position perched on top of the nucleus. That's because the vertebra is sitting on the nucleus and using it like a ball bearing. This means that if we go posterior in any direction, but particularly in posteriority, we go posterior and inferior. However, if we go anterior, we also go anterior and inferior, not superior. If the vertebra goes anterior and inferior, it would open the posterior, which means it cannot create nerve pressure. If anything, it'll probably relieve it, which is why it's so effective as a compensatory position. A subluxation, by definition, produces nerve pressure, but an anterior segment cannot produce nerve pressure, so it can never be a subluxation. More importantly, If we listen to our friends White and Punjabi, we find that most spinal fractures are produced by flexion and axial loading. However, flexion is resisted by the posterior ligaments. Since they are the weak ones, when they fail, they allow the vertebra to move posterior. That's why, with flexion-induced fractures, you will typically get a subluxation one or two levels lower than the fracture. If you put the person in extension and add compression, your most likely injury is a facet fracture. Both compression injuries are further evidence that with posteriority or anteriority, you get inferiority. Okay, let me get back on track. I needed to build a solid foundation, so now let's build the structure. Keep in mind, this is just one scenario of how this works, so this is not the only way that a subluxation is created, but it is a way. A person's walking down the street and experiences a trauma. That trauma overloads the disc, and it upsets the balance of the scale, if you will, that tenuous balance of the vertebra on the nucleus. The nucleus shifts, the vertebra becomes fixated, and the body has to shift the position of other vertebra to create compensation. Now watch this, for the purpose of maintaining the ability to walk. That is key, because we're still walking, but we now have a damaged disc with abnormally functioning discs all around it. What's the body going to do to protect the spine? Well, I know. How about we contract a muscle and create stabilization, limit mobility to prevent further damage, and, I think this one is key, pull the vertebra into lateral flexion to prevent compression of the damaged disc. Let me explain that one in a little more detail really quickly. If I have a PLS-L1, for example, you will find most often that the muscles on the right will be contracted. This is often confusing for new docs and it leads them to incorrectly conclude that the problem must be on the right because that's where the muscle spasm is. To the contrary, the brain does not want equal weight bearing across the disc as this will force the displaced and dysfunctional nucleus to bear weight. By contracting the contralateral muscles, contralateral to the vertebral wedge or the disc wedge, the body is able to pull the weight off the damaged disc And relieve the pressure on the nucleus. This, of course, has the effect of pulling the center of mass to the right, in our example, to the extent that if the person was to to stand up, they would fall to the right and actually tip over. So we then have compensation back to the left, which will shift the center of gravity back over the feet and allow our patient to remain bipedal and continue to walk. This narrative worked much better for me because it made sense of all the clinical findings, including neurology, which we didn't talk about today, but it's a long story, so we'll talk about it another time, but it also includes the muscle spasm aspect. I have to tell you that there's a phenomenon that often happens with muscles, and I'm sure you've seen this with your own patients. A patient complains of low back pain. They go and they get a massage. They then complain that they're experiencing more pain after the massage. It isn't because the massage therapist did anything wrong, and I usually tell them that. It's because if you remember the model, the muscles are stabilizing, limiting motion, and keeping weight off the damaged nucleus. By relaxing the muscles, you took away the body's natural defense mechanism, and it has no other way to accomplish those same things. The first model, which assumes muscle dysfunction is the basis for all musculoskeletal problems, has no answer for why a massage would make the patient worse. After all, reducing hypertonicity should take pressure off the joints. So let me now tie all this together by bringing the adjustment into the equation. Most people who ascribe to the first model use the diversified approach or some variant of it. Of course, diversified is difficult to nail down because there is no official documentation of how it should be performed. So let's just simply think about the supine cervical adjustment. What is the purpose of such a maneuver? At this point, you should recognize that the purpose is to create joint motion at the facet joints for the purpose of unsticking the joint fixation. In this scenario, joint fixation alone is the definition of a manipulable lesion. One has to wonder, is rotation the only way to accomplish this? No, it seems laterality in the form of a lateral break will also create a cavitation, which it is presumed is ample evidence that the joint fixation is no more. This approach only works logically in the first scenario and the only logical approach in the second scenario is to move the vertebra with the intention of correcting the dysfunction of the nucleus so all the defense mechanisms are alleviated and it is the cessation of defense mechanisms that serves as proof that the nucleus problem was actually corrected. So let me give you two definitions. These are my definitions and nothing official, but I came up with these definitions to keep things straight in my own head. Okay, are you ready? First is my definition of a diversified adjustment. Once again, I'm attempting to make an Iron Man argument, and I've taught diversified classes, so it's my intention to be accurate and not derogatory or insulting. That being said, my definition of a diversified adjustment is this. The creation of a joint movement for the purpose of creating a joint cavitation with little or no application of joint stabilization. In contrast, My definition of a Gonstead adjustment is the creation of a joint movement for the purpose of creating joint neutrality as evidenced by reestablishing proper joint biomechanics and neurology with special attention placed on stabilization. Now I'll be the first to admit, my definitions come with a specific consequence. That is, if you perform an adjustment and your guiding aim is whether or not you get a cavitation or if you perform an adjustment with little or no emphasis on stabilization, then that is, by definition, a diversified adjustment. Whether or not you did it in the chair is irrelevant. You might think that's a harsh consequence, but it's my definition, because that's what I needed to make sure I was focusing on the right things. And that often entails forcefully ignoring the unimportant things that only serve as a distraction anyway. Now, let me wrap this up by getting back to the original topic, the chilling effect. I know this is not the case on every chiropractic school campus, but I also know that there are some where it is true, that students are afraid to engage with their instructors in frank conversations like the one we've had today for fear of retribution and punishment, or maybe just the fear of public ridicule and embarrassment doled out by an instructor who's in an unfair position of power. That's the reason why the Supreme Court has been frowning on this type of behavior, because it isn't a fair fight and everybody knows it. That means the best argument will not win the day but the person in the position of power will, regardless of the validity of their actual argument. I can't tell you how many times I heard an instructor say something ridiculous and untrue about Gonstead, but they got away with it because nobody dared to challenge the person who controlled their grade. This also tends to produce a sort of academic laziness, when you no longer have to be concerned with whether or not what you're saying is true because you know that you can say anything and get away with it. That's actually the antithesis of what an academic environment should be. Personally, I'd like to see more schools encourage public debate as a way of exposing their students to different ideas. Of course, most of them don't want different ideas. Obviously, I don't think any of us are going to do anything to change that anytime soon, but once we're aware that it is our reality, there's nothing keeping you from getting these ideas straight in your own mind, on your own time, right now. Hopefully, I've helped you to be able to do that today, I hope you found this to be a helpful conversation and hopefully it helps you to get some of your own thoughts straight. Let me conclude by giving you some of the highlights to think about. First, the reason why some of the profession want to call themselves physicians and they don't think that we should be taking x-rays is because they ascribe to the first model. If you're looking for facet fixation, it doesn't make much sense to look at x-rays because you're not gonna find it on there. They wanna be called physicians because they see themselves as being consistent with the physical therapy model, which is generally adopted by others in the medical profession as well. The second takeaway is that we, as a profession, have done a poor job of defining what an adjustment is. This has led to a lot of contention between different groups. Whether you're moving the facet joints, moving the disc, or swinging a dead chicken over your head as we used to joke in school, it all counts as an adjustment. The question is, is it effective? You need to answer that for yourself. The third takeaway is that you ultimately have to decide if you think muscles are the prime determinant and the vertebra are merely going along for the ride, so to speak, or the var- vertebra are the primary determinant and the muscles are merely along for the ride. As I like to remind people, it really doesn't matter what you think or believe, the only thing that matters is, is it true? To know if it's true, you have to observe the effect it has on reality. Does it make a discernible difference? Is that difference predictable and measurable? I'd like to close by telling you an observation that I made not that long ago. There's an area in Reno known as Evans Creek. This area is comprised of farms, usually about five to 20 acres in size. This area is unique because when you are there, you feel like you're out in the country, away from it all. In reality, you're no more than a mile from the main road in Reno, which will take you to downtown and even the Reno strip. For this unique reason, the properties are very valuable. At the same time, many of these properties have very old houses that sit on them. So people do what you might expect. They buy the properties, although they're rarely for sale. They tear down the house and they build a new one in its place. A little while back, I was driving through this area with my family and I made an observation. There were three houses that we saw where they were in various stages of tearing down a house and building a new one. It turns out, if you tear it down to the foundation, you're still confined to building a house of roughly the same size and shape. If you really wanna build a better house, you have to take down even the foundation and start anew. The fact of the matter is that sometimes we have to do that with ourselves in our career. Sometimes you have to get to the point of asking yourself, am I really able to help anyone? What if everything I do and every assumption I make about how it should be done is wrong? Or what if only one is, but I can't find it if I don't tear it all down? Today's topic is intended to be one of those areas where you can tear everything down to the foundation and then tear that down too. Dig into the dirt, figuratively speaking, and get that straight first in your mind before you even start on a foundation. Understand what is happening, but more importantly understand why it is happening. What is the body trying to do? Is it smart and you can trust that it's doing something intelligent and you merely have to figure out why? Or is it just a series of mindless reactions and responses a mechanism built on reflexes, and there ultimately is no why. These are some of the things you have to get straight in your own mind before you can build the rest of your chiropractic philosophy, science, and art. But if you do, if you build a solid foundation on solid ground, there's no limit to how far you can go as you build above it. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.